and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. You saw that. Um, in just a few moments, we're going to dive into this passage. So let me make sure uh, you have something to write with. There's a lot of things to write down, a lot of notes, a lot of powerful things in this. Not from me, but from God in this. And we'll be in the passage here of chapter 4. It's an Old Testament book, comes right after First, Second Chronicles, then the book of Ezra. Uh, and so it's good to be back with you. Let me say that. Uh, you guys hear that ring a little bit? Uh, it's good to be back with you. Guys, uh, thanks for letting me be gone for just a couple of weeks. BB and I went on a week-long little short vacation to Alaska. It was the bomb. I love it. Uh, I preached uh, then last week at our sister church. I've actually been back uh, a couple of weeks, but I uh, preached at our sister church, uh, which is uh, pastored by one of our former pastors, Ralph Helm. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was out in Brush, Colorado. Love those guys. Well, you know, the last three weeks... Uh, you guys have heard, I've joined you online uh, for a months-long special sermon series around family discipleship, and I wanted to add my voice to that as well. As we wrap it up today, I'm going to put the cherry on top. Uh, God willing, next week we'll get back to John chapter 7 in our series, So That You May Believe. That's our series where we are working our way through verse by verse. Someone told me that they were, they were missing that series. They were, uh, they're ready to move forward. So, uh, be ready next week in John chapter seven. But what we want to do today is study one of my personal favorite chapters in the Old Testament chapter of Nehemiah four. Now, if you remember back, a few years ago, we preached verse by verse through the book of Ezra. You remember that? Uh, and this book of Nehemiah is kind of the sequel to that book. And someday after we get through with, with John, we'll preach verse by verse all the way through Nehemiah. But I wanted us to get going here in Nehemiah as we wrap up this series uh, because I think it is such a great example of what we're doing, the work of God as a family to build what I call the city of God. When we talk about the family of God, we can say the church or God's people. I want to use the term city of God in a way here today that may be unusual. For today, I want to think of that city of God that you and I are part of and that we're building. And what I'm referring to is this idea of the church, this people of God, this community that building it into all that God designed it to be. This is our key objective for today and how we're to build the church family. This is how we're going to do it, the city that God wants to build. Well, eventually, all the believers will make it to that real city of God in heaven. Amen? We're, we're keeping our eyes on that. We're looking for that day. But right now, our job, your job, my job, is to build the city of God we call the church. Now, for you guys that don't know the story very well, let me go ahead and tell you the setting of this story that we're going to look at today in Nehemiah 4. The Jewish people, who had been God's chosen people, had been carried off into captivity into Babylon, which was now ruled by Persia over 70 years later. It had been a result of their sin 
the sins of the Jewish people and the people and their kings had turned their backs on God. And as a result of not obeying God's word, God had allowed a foreign country to come in, decimate the city, destroy it, carry only a few people out to captivity that killed the rest. And for 70 years, uh, God does this uh, uh, work in them rebuilding them in a foreign land. And then he does this amazing work of bringing them back into the city that's now totally destroyed except for the temple. The book of Ezra, you'll remember, talks about the first kind of two waves of people that come back from Persia, Babylonian empire. And they come back and they rebuild the temple, but not the city. The Babylonians had destroyed everything they conquered. The city, they took the people into captivity, everything. The book of Nehemiah is the written history then from a firsthand account of Nehemiah as he says, hey, I'm going to tell you what I did. The Persian king, you've heard of him, Artaxerxes, had sent his official Nehemiah, who was a Jew, he was a Hebrew, Uh, back to rebuild the city. It's an amazing story of him coming back anyway. He's an unlikely leader, but isn't that how God often does things? He he chooses just unlikely people. Hey, we've got t-shirts. Yeah, me too. Yeah, when, when Nehemiah arrives in the city of Jerusalem, he inspects the city. He rides around it at night, finds its giant holes in the wall, much of the wall's missing. It's just piles of rubble. Everything has been broken down. There's really no buildings except for the temple. Now, the insight we might not get in our modern understanding is without a city's walls, the people can't really prosper. They can't grow. Business can't take place. Without the walls, there's no defense. And without defense, the life of the city, and really, let's just include the whole country, never takes shape. You get what I'm saying? The people don't come back to the city if it's not safe. And yet the people also need each other for life, for trade, uh, for their kids to marry each other, to, for life to happen. The community, the people of the city need each other For the city to function. And they need a wall. In this first step of rebuilding the city. Now the rest of Nehemiah. Is about rebuilding the people of God. But this is really. Where it starts with the walls. Of rebuilding the city. There needs to be a capital city. Because without a main city. A capital city. There's no spark for the the country to reignite. Now Nehemiah. Rallies the people of Judea around Jerusalem, and then the few people that are in Jerusalem and close surrounding areas to come back in the city and start rebuilding. It's a dangerous attempt to rebuild the city. Some had tried and they had, well, been dissuaded from doing it. Because although Nehemiah has the Persian king's endorsement, that's 1,100 miles away. A 52-day journey If you traveled far every day. And the enemies of God are right there all around them. You're going to see a guy by the name of Sanballat. He's almost like a family crime boss. He's another governor of the Samaritan people in the north. And he's like going, you're not going to be rebuilding the city. You know, he's threatening. 
And so the enemies are threatening to destroy the people of God, attempting to rebuild these walls. And certainly they don't want them to rebuild the city. Now, what's very cool in chapter 3, right before what we're studying here today, it's a list. It sounds kind of boring if you just read through it unless you study it. It's a list of 39 people groups, of groups of people, families and stuff, that rebuild 41 sections of the wall Uh, to get ready to secure the city from attack. Now, what's amazing is that God does that all through that list of chapter 3. These 39 different people groups, there are all sorts of people working together around the clock. I mean, you've got rich, poor, young, old. You've got men, women, fathers, sons, daughters. You've got different trades in there. Priests are even building stuff. They're stacking the stones and even some, check this out, goldsmiths and perfumers or or day laborers there. Now we'll pick it up, the story in chapter four. That's the setting. The enemies of God's people begin to threaten the people that begin to rebuild the walls. So you got the picture? So we read in chapter four, verses one through three, Now, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah's writing this, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the uh, presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria, get that, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, uh, it will break down their stone wall. Tobiah's a jerk, by the way. So, so Sanballat, kind of the leader, Tobiah, his guy that's just like the bully that stands next to him, they're rulers of nearby territories And they have been over these areas and keeping the people of God from rebuilding the city of God. This has been their MO. They threaten people of God back down. One of the things that we see in the book of Nehemiah is a regular pattern of threat or problem and response. Write this down. It's key to the story. Here it is. We see this pattern, a threat against God's people, number one. Then prayer to God for direction. And then God's people take action. Now watch this. This is a pattern for your life as well. Threat against God's people, that could be a problem. You take that to God in prayer and then God's people take action. Now whether or not it's an outright threat made against God's people or a problem we see in the midst of God's people, Nehemiah has the same response all through the book. And this is one of the reasons I love this book of Nehemiah. It's both a pattern for him, but a pattern for our lives individually. But check this out for us as a church as well. Problem or threat, prayer, action. Now here's the deal. If we get this out of order, it doesn't work. For instance, you can't successfully face a threat or a problem, take action, and then seek God's direction. (laughs) I've done that. 
I've tried that on many occasions. It just simply doesn't work. Like, God, would you take this problem that I have and the action that I took and bless it and fix it? It just doesn't work. You got to seek God first. As well, the prayer doesn't work if you're unwilling to take the action that God directs you to take. Are you with me? So, and then verses one through three, we see this problem of the threat. And then these enemy leaders, it's a real threat. So we read Nehemiah's response. Let's read it in verse four and five. Hear, O Lord, our God, for we are despised. What is he doing? He's praying. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now listen to how Nehemiah prays. He prays to God. He says, God, do you hear the taunts and threat made against your people, the people of God? But then he prays, turn those taunts back on their head, God. We don't pray that way very often, do we? I like how Nehemiah prays. And and he prays, don't forgive their sin, for they are really attacking you with their threats. They're not just attacking us. Now get this. Nehemiah is saying, God, since we are carrying out your plans that you clearly gave us, the threats they are making against us, God, they're making against you. They are making fun of you, God, with their taunts. And when Nehemiah prays, they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. In other words, God, they're making you look bad in front of us as we build. What he's saying is, God, this is a matter of you protecting your good name, God. We know, God, that these threats are against you, and we are watching how you act. We're watching, God. So we've seen the threats made. We've read the prayer, Nehemiah prays. So let's see how the people take action. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall. I like that. They actually built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. It's a short little verse, powerful in meaning. They built the wall. In other words, they heard the threat, they saw the problem, they took the problem to God, and they took action. They started stacking stones. They started building the city of God. Now, this is a miracle that God accomplishes here. I don't mean to say, look at how great these people did. I don't want us to miss. This is God that does the miracle. The wall is now all the way around the city. That's an important thing if you're ever building the city. You, you know, you, you got to have all the way around the city. It's joined together. It's only half its height, which is right about here. But it's a defensible position because you can duck down, stick your sword or spear over fire arrows. But it's that last line I want us to see that and really understand. Look at that. When we read, for the people had a mind to work. That's huge for two reasons. Number one, the city's walls were not being rebuilt was the fault of the people not seeking God in the first place. They had had the direction for a long time, but they just failed to take action. The temple had been finished for decades at this point. And although the plan to rebuild the walls of the city had been in place for decades, every time they had been stopped by the Sanballat guy and Tobiah. 
Because the threat had been always from the enemy. So people of God had kind of cowered back and go, I don't know. I don't know if we can do this. Here, write this down. A lot of notes today. Often problems persist until you take them to God and he reveals a solution. Often problems persist until you take them to God and he reveals a solution. God will sometimes leave problems in the lives of his followers until we come to him. And even then, sometimes he leaves the problem in place, look, to shape us and grow us. Some of you, that sounds like bad news. I promise you it's not. It hurts. I know it. There's separate sermon here we could preach right here. I'm dying to, but we've got other things to see today. Second thing, I I want us to see about the problem people are facing. Sometimes Christians often pray, they hope for a miracle, right? Some supernatural movement of God and, and they never take action. They're just going, we're just waiting on God to do this. The problem keeps persisting and the work of God doesn't move forward. Please understand that when God uses our actions and obedience It's just as miraculous as if he worked alone. Now, baby, we're getting in some deep stuff here. When God uses our actions and obedience, it's just as miraculous as if he worked alone. You've heard the story about the man in the flood and floodwaters are rising around his home, so... He, he crawls on the roof because it's all flooded and guy comes by in a boat, says, hey, hop in, I'll take you to safety. The guy goes, no, I'm waiting on God to save me. And then later on, one of those big trucks, you know, with the giant tires that we all want, comes by and the guy says, hey, hop in, I'll take you through the flood. And then uh, he says, no, I, I'm waiting on God to save me. And then He finally has to get up on the chimney because the the water's lapping at his feet and a helicopter comes by and and lets down a ladder and, and, you know, one of those rope ladders and they say, get in. And he says, I'm waiting on God. Well, the guy drowns. He gets to heaven and he says, God, why didn't you save me? He says, well, I sent you like a boat and a truck and a helicopter. Now that, that, that story is theologically incorrect. But it does demonstrate a point. Here's the point. God frequently accomplishes his plans through our prayers and subsequent actions. God frequently accomplishes his plans through our prayers and subsequent actions. Folks, I would say this is the way he works most of the time. Our prayers and the, the actions that he has us take without trying to sound like some name it and claim it kind of prosperity gospel preacher I don't mean that but listen to me a lot of times in Christian lives in the church we never get past the problems in our lives we never get to take advantage of the opportunities that God provides for us because after we seek God we often do not take the action necessary to confront the problem. And I get it. I do. It's scary to take risk. 
to step out on faith. It's scary to do that. But it's a fake Christianity to simply pray and then not be willing to take action that God clearly gives us to take. Because when we do take action, the enemy's going to get upset. Let's read in verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Asherites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. What an understatement. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. They've made some people mad. Now, this is a result of following Christ. The enemy gets upset. The enemy doesn't want the city of God to be rebuilt. They've got to stop it at all costs. So now the enemy, they're going to take action against the people of God. It's not just taunts, taunts anymore. Taunts are those little things that you remember on your tray at lunch, tater tots. They're not just taunts anymore. So remember our formula, threat, pray, and action. What does Nehemiah do here? Look at verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah follows the plan. He sticks to the plan. He prays to God about what to do. And when he sets a guard for day and night to defend the city of God, Nehemiah is taking action. Now let's, let's not play like everything's some, somehow hunky-dory here in the story. This is dangerous. This is bloodshed that could happen any moment. This is real life stuff. People begin to lose hope though. People forget the plans of God or they can look at their situation. They can conclude it's just too hard. There's too much rubble. There's too much mess in life. And they can just say, I'm out of here. This is what happens here when we read in verse 10. The people are losing their momentum. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Unpack this with me. The people are losing heart. Why? Because it's hard. They see the rubble. It's all around their feet. By the way, where did the rubble come from? Because they, their ancestors had not followed God. God had allowed someone to come in and knock down their, their city. The people look at the rubble. They go, this is too hard. We can't do it. And they say something when they say, by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's very true. But they weren't alone, were they? By working together on what God called them to do, they were much, much stronger than they had had assumed. God brought them together to do the work. Now, write this down. I know there's a lot of notes, a lot of good stuff here, though. God brings the right community together at the right time for his purposes. God brings the right community together at the right time for his purposes. Now, this should encourage you here. There's no accidents. God had brought these people together out of slavery. The Persian kingdom that now ruled the Babylonian kingdom. It had been God who brought the people back. That was not some random chance event that the cupbearer to the king would ask 
to go back and rebuild the city. Let's take uh, that back to the church today. And I'm talking about the local church. When God leads people to form a church, it's no accident. He brings people and he begins to shape and mold each individual into a unit, a church, a family, a city of God. But don't miss it. He is also shaping the whole community for a very specific purpose. What I'm saying is that it is God who brought you and you and you into this body of Christ or what we call the church. Back to the story of Nehemiah. The enemy is now so upset. Their blood is boiling. They are seething because the people of God have done what God had called them to do. Now, before the threat of the enemies of God's people had been mostly just kind of veiled threats, taunting. And they had been mostly making up the taunts and they were lame. So we read it in verse, uh, verse 11. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now we're talking about bloodshed. Look, the enemy doesn't back down. The threats increase and more vicious at that. Apparently these threats were getting through to the people of God from their family and friends out in the country. How are the threats getting through? We're not told directly. We can assume some stuff. But look at verse 12 kind of tells us. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times. just means a lot. They came over and over. You must return to us. The enemy's threatening their families in these small unwalled villages. The family members who were not in the city helping to rebuild the city of God, they're afraid. They're going, you know, wives are going, honey, you've got to come home from rebuilding. They're going to wipe out our village. They're going to kill me and, and the kids. They hear the threats against the people of God, so they send word to the city and they say, stop it, stop it, stop it. Over and over again, they say, come home. You're doing this thing for God, but it's just too hard. Just give up. I know it's a good idea, but don't do it. Now, here's the thing I want us to clue you in on. This, is, this might be a little painful. When you serve God and the church, some family and friends may try to dissuade you. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you serve God and church... And the church and some family and friends may try to dissuade you. That doesn't mean that your family and friends are intentionally trying to be this evil ghoul and say, stop following God. And they've got horns coming out of their head. They probably just haven't prayed about it. They probably aren't on the same wavelength. They haven't heard from God and responded like you have. And in that case, you simply have to say, I'm sorry, I love you, but I must follow God. Even though it's dangerous, even though it may fail, I'm doing what God asked me to do, even if it costs me my life. Or you could say, when it costs me my life. So Nehemiah responds in verse 13 and 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, remember military attack is imminent. He says, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, 
Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah Nehemiah adjusts the game plan to the threats by placing guards in the areas that they need to be. But then he does something important. He reminds them who they are and who God is in him. That he God is great and awesome and therefore you must fight the enemy because God is on our side. He said, he reminds us that we must fight for the other people in the group, in the clan. He has brought us together. Fight for the city of God, the church, the fight, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And now could God simply wipe out the enemy? Yes, yes, God doesn't need us, but here's the deal. This is cool. God involves us in his work to shape us into who he designed us to be. This is so important in a Christian's life. If you're wondering what's happening in your life, here it is. God involves us in his work to shape us into who he designed us to be. And baby, it's painful. It is. It's quite literally the struggling in the building of the church family in our lives that God uses to shape us and grow us into the church he desires us to be, in the church he'd planned. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Paul, why talk about this when we're supposed to be talking about the importance of discipleship in the family of God? How is this discipleship? Let me answer answer uh, that question with one word. Here it is, urgency. Urgency. Hmm. Let me lay this out for us. The people of God, under the leadership of Nehemiah, have three things that have led to an urgency in the situation of working together. First, they have a call by God to rebuild the city, don't they? Starting with the walls for defense. That's the first step. Second, until the walls are built, real life in the city, everyday life won't return. The city won't thrive. So the people's way of life and their very lives hang in the balance if they don't get this first domino in place. While the people rebuild the walls, the people are going to have to live in a constant state of being ready for war. That takes a lot of effort. The third thing that drives this urgency is that there are enemies that are constantly making credible threats to destroy the people of God in the city of God. Now, the Jewish people's choices are pretty straightforward. Yield to the enemy and go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, or rebuild the city and be ready to fight. There's your choice. Many of the Jewish people had been back from captivity at this point for decades. They had rebuilt the center of worship, the temple, but they had never rebuilt the walls because of fear. But what the people had not done was to act on what God had done already. Now, in making that agreement with the enemy, the people of God make an agreement with the enemy. Do you see that? They turn their backs on God and say, well, we'll just do this. It's easier. Now we can all be happy. I just don't want, I don't want to make them mad. They make an agreement with the enemy. 
even though they had said they wanted to rebuild the city of God, the urgency never was there to actually put one stone on top of the other. Urgency in the name of the game is the name of the game for these people as they re- rebuild the city. Time is of the essence. Now, this is why this story comes to mind as I prepared for this message for the end of this series about family discipleship. Let me just lay this out for us as Christians living in the United States in Colorado in this day and age. We, and I'm talking about you and me, we need urgency in the local church. And since I'm a senior pastor here, I'm particularly speaking about Bentry Church and our urgency. Let the people, just like then, uh, like the people that lived in Nehemiah's day, we are at a place of decision and it's driving an urgency I want to share with you because let me be honest, I'm not sure you see it. What, what is it that I see that is raising the level of urgency to build the church or what we also call the city of God for today? We have a call on us to build the church. That's our call. You hear me say regularly that building isn't the church, isn't the structure. The people are. The building we use is just to gather us as a tool. Important tools, but just tools. The building is not the church. We need to build the walls, if you will, to to build the city of God. I'm talking about the church, the people of God. That we both, as both individuals and as a body, can do everything that God calls us to do. What's holding us back? Well, there are real enemies of God that are amassing on the horizon, not just against Bentry, but against all churches. But I'm not over all the churches. I'm over this one. And the threats are not always visible to everyone. And I realize that there are some that will call me. They'll say, hey, Paul, you're an alarmist. I don't think so. My reply to them is that either they don't see the obvious threats or maybe they're a part of the threat. What I'm hoping to do for our remaining time for these Uh, for those that don't see the threat, is to describe the threat to you and then let's take it to God in prayer. And then let's take action. We'll, We'll follow the formula. Here's what I sense in the urgency. The church is under attack in seven ways. Let me outline these for us. We'll go quick through these. I need to take these quickly, but please know that I can back these up with hard numbers and examples But I just want you to see them. One point of attack is beginning to show itself in the failure of our government to protect the rights given to every person. Write this down. Failure of our government to protect the rights given by God to every person. Now I'm going to sound like a Christian nationalist for a moment. I don't intend that at all. But this is the threat the church faces. Failure of our government to protect the rights given by God to every person. And certainly, there's a lot of things we could use here. Abortion being one. In the past, the American church, uh, American Christians have been able to not worry about our freedoms to worship uh, the way we are called to in Scripture, right? I think we saw the beginning of this threat show itself in government control during the COVID shutdown. I do. 
Now, I'm not looking to make a point about COVID at all. I'm not saying that like what much of the Christian world is facing outside of the United States. We must build the church family that we can rely on each other when the threat returns. The second area of attack from the enemy has already begun with our children. The enemy is teaching the exact opposite of basic Christian values. Culture is teaching the exact opposite of basic Christian values. Culture is teaching the exact opposite of basic Christian values. Some of you are beginning to see this already. We need to teach our children what the Bible actually says about how we live life as believers and followers of Christ Jesus. And from A to Z, what we are teaching is not what the world is teaching our children. And you say, how are they teaching it? What's what's the world teaching? And it's right under their noses, quite literally. Think about this. The world gets our children's attention through school and screens. Let's, let's say that kids spend an average of six hours per day in school. And according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, kids age, ages 8 through 18 now spend on average seven and a half hours in front of a screen each day on entertainment. That's not school. That means that on average, the average kid spends about 52 and a half hours on entertainment, much of it designed to lead your kids in the wrong direction. And then, if they spend another 30 hours per week on school, so that means that 70 plus hours per week, although there may be some good instruction and learning going on from our Christian teachers, there's a lot of time and opportunity for our children to be indoctrinated at school. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I'm looking at the enemy over the wall. I'm not saying all teachers are the enemy. Don't hear me say that. I'm just saying that there is enemy out there. Except for the families at Bentry that do in-home discipleship during the week. The average Christian family at Bentry will only get their children to church, to Sunday school, about one hour per week. And on average, that's about half the weeks. So that means... The average Christian family has told their, uh, has their children receiving a 70 to 1 ratio of the world's teaching to Christian values. 70 to 1, folks. Folks, do you see the urgency with our children? This, this isn't new. It's just accelerating. This is, this is not the parents with children at home. Um, it's not just the the parents with children at home. This is our family that's under attack. We, the whole church, must raise our children in the foundation of Scripture. And your children, if your children are at risk, that means my family is at risk because we are the family of God. The third major attack I see from the enemy is on the family unit itself, the decline and fall of a mother and father at home. The decline and fall of biblical roles of family, mother, and father at home. The decline and fall of biblical roles of family, mother, and father at home. Divorce, 
same-sex marriages, which is really um, on the horizon in some states, multiple marriages, we're actually seeing that right now in Loveland, where there's three and four parents living all in a marriage unit. Look, the goal of the enemy is the total and complete, complete collapse of the individual family unit. That's the goal, make no mistake. That's because God set the family up as the very first and the most basic institution on earth that makes up our society. The enemy is making headway in destroying the family unit. As well as we see the near total collapse of the multi-generational family of grandparents connected to grandchildren through parents. We see that very segmented off. That's never happened in the history of any nation. Come on now. Now listen to me. If you're a single parent, I do not mean this as an attack on you. I promise. We want to stand with you. Your job, incredibly difficult. The church, the city of God should be a refuge though for you. For your children, your family, all the people of the families that form one family, the people of God in the city of God. Our goal here is that we have to work to strengthen our marriages and strengthen our families in the church. Strong marriages only happen with very hard work and happen best in Christian community. Sunday morning worship and Sunday school for our children and youth. D3 groups and discipleship groups are all critical ingredients of the Christian community. Now the fourth area of attack we are seeing is the attack on biblical sexuality and confusion of genders. The attack on biblical sexuality and the confusion of gender roles and identities. You're going, Paul, you just, you just went for it, didn't you? Hey, I've been on vacation. Look at this. The attack on biblical sexuality and the confusion of gender roles and identities. Now this fourth area is attacking our next generation the hardest. They have simply been lied to by the outside world. And the world has tried to change the definition of who a man is and the role a man plays in the family and in church and society. They have simply lied to people about who a woman is, the definition of a woman. They would say, oh, you can't put a definition. Actually, we can. It's quite easy. These areas are attacking gender and sexuality and the roles in the family are the very foundation of every society, every society for the last 6,000 years. Clear biblical teaching and preaching is the only cure for this confusion. We have to step up as a church and address this. No amount of political wrangling will help. I'm not saying that we don't engage as Christians in the political arena. I I go and vote. But what I'm saying is that politics are a downstream reaction. What we need in the United States is an upstream change of heart. A change of hearts, only God can do that. We can't do it. Now hear me out. I'm not saying that we don't try to love and engage people wrestling with gender and sexual confusion and temptation and and sin. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we must engage them with truth and grace. 
Because grace without truth is just a lie. That leads to death. And truth without grace is brutality. Now accepting a lie, not accepting a lie, but def- uh, not bending the truth, but to demonstrate that we love people by telling them the truth and walking with people through difficult times. It's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Do you see the difference? I think for the next 20, 30 years, this is going to be a huge battle that we as the church must face. The fifth area sounds, well, it sounds the most non-threatening, but hear me out. It is probably the most dangerous of them all because the way it renders urgency in building the city of God meaningless to some. Here it is. Busy schedules of the Christian family. Busy schedules of the Christian family. You might just kind of pull your toes back in a little bit. It's the busyness of the Christian family We're simply too busy with everything else to do than to build the city of God. From our wallet to our calendar, we must make space for the things that really matter. This goes hand in hand with number six. Families are failing to place discipleship in the priority it needs to be. Families, I'm talking about Christian families, failing to place discipleship in the priority that it needs to be. The wrong order of priorities in life will, the wrong order of priorities in life will cause devastation. Now, This is so related to number five. It is the thing that we can measure our busyness in life. We are simply giving too much time, effort, and money to things that should rate, look, lower on the priority list. I wish I could bottle the pain and the sadness and the frustration I have witnessed firsthand from Christian parents that have had their children and they've raised their children. They're grown now. They've left they have this pain. Man, I would give that bottle of pain and sadness to younger parents that continue to place children's activities, sports, dance, clubs, hiking activities above discipleship and being involved in the church family. I know I'm stepping on some toes, but listen to me. Some of those parents that have had grown kids that have left that don't, they would beg you, please disciple your children. Disciple your children. It's not that Christian parents don't ever take their kids to church. They do. They're just not really consistent. They're just not really consistent. And they they take breaks and they play football and baseball and dance above the church. It's not that the other stuff is bad. That's not bad stuff. It's just out of priority. Listen, parents, every time you skip a D3 group or church itself for something else, you communicate to your child that spiritual stuff, the city of God, discipleship, is not the most important thing. It's second to you. And you go, no, no, Paul, church is the most important. I, I beg to differ. 
Your calendar shows what's important. Your checkbook does. Christians often don't realize what they're doing in dealing straight into the hands of the enemy. They have made an agreement with the enemy outside the walls to go, hey, would you raise our children? Woo, baby. When children's sports and other activities, our hobbies, our hunting, our camping trips, cause us to miss church and our D3 discipleship times, we are placing our priorities out of order. Now, let me say there are many families at Bentry Church, I'm looking at many right now, that are doing so well with this stuff. Thank you. And it's not easy, but you're doing it. Thank you. You're getting your children, your students here, and you're doing what it takes to build, build your family, to build this family. You're doing discipleship well. There are people that are serving in our Sunday school, and, and you, thank you. The last area of attack that I see coming for the churches, certainly a result of what I just mentioned above, is apathy towards discipleship in general of others in the church, especially, especially the next generation. Write this down. Christians are not committed to serving and giving in the local church. Christians are not committed to serving and giving in the local church. We have a lot to do here at Bentry. I'm thankful. I'm just telling you, this is what the enemy is amassing on the horizon. It blows my mind that at a church like Bentry that we have to limit access for children and youth and D3 groups because it's just too hard to serve and fit it in. We should have more than enough teachers. But for some reason, many of you that have been called by God to do that have just said, no, I just don't have the time, Paul. It amazes me that we don't have enough money to do the ministry that God has called us to do because we spend it on other stuff instead of giving the tithe. It amazes me that believers in Christ Jesus who have been purchased out of the slavery of sin have put church as some kind of a backup option as long as they don't have anything better to do in life. Listen, I know, I know I'm being rough on you because I love you. And because there's a real enemy out there. I didn't surrender to the idea of leading a church as a pastor to simply do a little bit for God. I just didn't do that. I gave my life, as many of you did. I want to build the city of God. Do you? Do you? Well, back to our text for today. Listen to how the story goes. Look at verse 15 through 20. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his, his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and the other and half held the spears, shields, and bows and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of God who were building on the wall. Those who had carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other hand. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side we, uh, while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Watch this. 
And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Folks, I'm blowing the trumpet. I'm blowing the trumpet today. There are threats that the church faces. And let's be clear, these threats have destroyed many of our sister churches. Do you remember, do you realize more churches in Loveland, Colorado are now closed than there are open? Come on. What I'm asking you to do is this, engage. Like the people building the wall, build the city of God, build the church. Let's build the city of God together. Each man, each woman building the wall with one hand on their sword, strapped uh, to the side, ready. And when the threat comes their way, they're ready. And like Nehemiah and the people did, they saw the threat. They took the threat to God in prayer, and then they took action. Folks, let's build the church. Let's build the body of Christ into everything that God has called us to be. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I'm humbled to be a part of this church. Thank you for each and every one of them that you have called them to be a church and they have responded, so many of them. God, I delivered the message. I I felt like you called me to deliver and it hurt to hurt my, my own family. But God, I pray that you use this to prick the hearts of those who need to join the effort. God, I I know it's no accident that you have brought the people here that you have brought, that not even one person is an accident. God, would you unify us into a church? God, I, I pray for more people to come, God, but I also pray that we would have the ability to disciple everyone who comes. God, I pray specifically that we're able to to have Sunday school for our children at both services. God, that's going to take a huge effort. God, I pray that that would be the case. God, I pray that you would encourage people to step out in faith, to serve in places that, that they might feel uncomfortable to serve. That you would invigorate them. God, I pray that we wouldn't just see the threat on the horizon of the enemies. But God, would we see the city of God the way you would have it built? And God, we look forward to the ultimate city of God, the people of God together one day in heaven. But until then, God, we pray you move in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.